Hello and welcome. This is the Climate Voices podcast and I'm your host Omesa Mukaya. I'm thrilled to welcome you to the second episode of our podcast that will be bringing together various climate champions that have been addressing climate change from different parts of the world to share their positive stories and experiences. We will be unpacking the complicated climate science one conversation at a time to make sure that we're leaving no one behind in the fight against climate change. On this episode, we are joined on the show by an amazing guest that has really done a lot of work in addressing climate change in different capacities. Mr. Amos, who leads the energy transition aspects of PowerShift Africa, advocacy and communications, is responsible for integrating and implementing a broad range of strategic initiatives that advance just energy transition to 100% renewable energy and climate justice in Africa. He is a researcher, an advocate and strategist with over 10 years of experience and a track record of overseeing and collaborating with cross-functional teams. He has been engaged in community climate resilience, programming, environmental activism and energy consultancy. He works with community groups, youth, women and civil society entities in training and co-creating solutions and implementing policy shifts on issues of climate and energy, environmental sustainability and social change. Amos specializes on issues of human rights, climate change, renewable energy and just transitions. Welcome, uh, Mr. Amos. Thank you so much for having me on this uh, podcast. So, let's dive straight into the conversation. Could you briefly tell us what you're doing at the moment specifically uh, in addressing climate change? Thank you so much. Um, like you've rightly mentioned, uh, currently I'm working with uh, PowerShift Africa as the Senior Advisor on Renewable Energy and Just Transitions. And uh, in PowerShift, uh, we work on issues of research, issues of advocacy, and communications around climate and energy uh, in Africa. And uh, my role, um, I work across levels. I work with community groups. I work with uh, national civil society groups, but also policymakers. Um, I also work across the continent uh, trying to shift policies around climate and energy and uh, uh, working to enable um, build resilient, climate resilient systems uh, for Africa. Um, as we all of us may know, Africa is the worst hit uh, by climate crisis. Um, our communities are suffering from frequent droughts, uh, floods, cyclones, uh, pests, and diseases. So um, we are working across levels to ensure that we have resilient systems that can enable uh, our communities to withstand uh, all these challenges that are being brought about by uh, the changing climatic conditions. You mentioned about uh, you know working towards enabling systems. So uh, briefly, talk about uh, the building resilience in terms of the food systems in Kenya because this is the work that we've done before. I've had an opportunity of working before with you on this. And uh, briefly, can you talk about uh, the, role, the the work that you're doing in terms of addressing the food uh, issues that we're facing in Africa? Yes, uh, one of the sectors that has been uh, very much affected by the climate crisis is the agriculture sector. Um, farmers are unable to plant uh, when and they are required to plant because uh, probably the rains are not there. Uh, or when they plant, the droughts come and destroy their crops and uh, their productivity is not as high as expected or it has been previously. So food security is a big problem, not just for Kenya, but across the continent. As we speak right now, we have so many uh, 
people, uh, our communities that are uh, facing the danger uh, of hunger and starvation because of uh, failed crops as a result of uh, either droughts or floods or pests. So um, what we've been doing before is uh, to reintroduce traditional African practices um, that have uh, for a very long time sustained communities, especially farmers. Um, and these practices uh, are built on um, the principles of uh, protecting the environment, protecting nature, for nature to be able to provide for us. Um, the practice is commonly called ecological farming or ecological agriculture. And the practices around ecological agriculture is that uh, everything that is used in the farm, the inputs, uh, come from nature. With these practices, uh, we realized that the communities were more resilient uh, because they did not uh, depend on agrochemicals uh, for their productivity or agro beds uh, for their agricultural uh, work. Uh, with the challenges that we are facing today, uh, everything is very uncertain. Um, we've seen recently with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, farmers having problems accessing fertilizer. Uh, so uh, we have worked with farmers before trying to build uh, resilient agricultural systems by reverting back to uh, agricultural practices that uh, benefit uh, from nature, that benefit uh, from the systems within uh, the farm to be able to uh, produce and increase productivity. We have seen uh, biocontrol measures uh, being used to um, control pests that are destroying crops. We have seen farmers uh, uh, produce their own manure for agricultural productivity. We have seen farmers uh, develop their own seed banks uh, to be able to sustain uh, their agricultural productivity. So what we've been doing is we've been capitalizing on available resources within our localities, within our context, uh, to be able to build on them uh, with modern technologies that are coming up to be able to enable uh, resilience among the farming systems uh, for food uh, uh, security. What you have said is like you're working with farmers, you've been working in co-creating solutions with the farmers. All these practices that you've mentioned that uh, seem to be something that can be uh, important in solving the, the issue of food insecurity yet. Uh, Kenya and other African countries continue to face the impacts of food insecurity. So what do you think that we are not doing correctly yet? There are all these uh, best practices that we know are in a good position to solve the issue of food insecurity. We have a problem of insufficient or what I might call perverted policies. Um, uh, we have a lot of vested interests uh, from uh, the industries that want to promote uh, fertilizers and uh, the use of agrochemicals. Um, you realize that the policies uh, that are in, in place in most of the countries across the continent do not support smallholder farmers, who are the key uh, stakeholders in ensuring food, uh, not just food security, but also food sovereignty. So when we have policies in place that are disadvantaging uh, the key stakeholders, that's where you, you come to see that uh, we are not able to feed ourselves. But what we've been working with, uh, like you mentioned in the introduction, that apart from co-creating solutions, we've been also uh, working to shift policies uh, to ensure that the policies that are in place are able to empower 
uh, the smallholder farmers who are the key stakeholders in food production uh, by uh, putting in place measures that increase investments, for example, in these initiatives, investments uh, in uh, seed production and seed sovereignty, investments uh, in uh, farming practices that promote the use of local resources uh, to be able to improve productivity. So we worked with farmers um, in Kenya. Um, you know, as we all may know, in Kenya right now, uh, agriculture is a devolved function. So we worked with farmers trying to influence policies at devolved levels, at subnational levels, uh, say that these policies and um, uh, investments are in favor of the activities that promote ecological farming, but also farming uh, that is uh, people-centered farming that uh, focuses on meeting the needs of the country, the needs of the people for food. I, I like what you're mentioning, that we need to come up with solutions that are people-centered, because everything that we do in this space, is it's about, uh, you know, creating change for the people. What we have seen before is a, it's a, it's a siloed approach where scientists are just doing research and it's not getting down to the people, it's not being disseminated to the people. The policymakers make the policies which don't end up bringing change. What we want to you know, achieve at the end of this is to make sure that we are having all these people working together, coming to the table to have a common discussion because we are all trying to solve a common issue. Uh, you also mentioned that you are doing some work on energy. Uh, so can you briefly talk about how we can tackle the energy crisis that we're facing in Africa as, as we're trying to, to shift away uh, from fossil fuels and moving towards uh, renewable energy. So, but we are facing a lot of challenges. You've been working in this space for some time. Can you briefly talk about that? Yeah, maybe before I speak about that, you mentioned something that is very uh, critical, um, breaking the silos. Uh, what we've been doing is we've been working, mobilizing various constituents, uh, various actors, bringing them together for um, us to be able to have common positions a common agenda that meets uh, the needs of the people. Mm -hmm. So um, we brought together scientists, we brought together civil society organizations, uh, we brought together community groups, we brought together young people, we brought together religious groups, we brought together feminists, we brought together uh, farmers to be able to develop solutions that are inclusive, solutions that meet uh, the people's needs, solutions that are fit for purpose. I think the issue, uh, the problem of lacking that critical mass that speak to the issue, that can set the agenda, is a big problem. But what we've been doing in our work, part of the work that we have done, is to bring all these constraints together to be able to forge a common agenda. Uh, now, back to the issue of energy. Africa is energy hungry. You see on a continent that has all resources that we need to be able to meet uh, the needs of our people, for a continent uh, that is so blessed with uh, capacity in terms of human resource, we have two billion people. Uh, it is uh, quite unfortunate that we still have over 620 million people who do not have access to electricity. And about half of Africa's population, which is about a billion people, do not have access to clean cooking. You see, energy is very essential for human development. As we talk about the climate crisis, energy is the only enabler that will be able to help Africa um, overcome its deprivations. 
And by Africa's deprivations, I'm talking about energy poverty, I'm talking about addressing the issue of climate crisis, but mm -hmm. also the issue of Africa's underdevelopment. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, we have been seen as a poor continent for quite a long time. If we need to move away from this, if we need uh, to meet our development aspirations, then we have to invest in appropriate energy. And I'm very deliberate about the, the word appropriate <laughs> yeah. because um, we've seen previous energy systems fail mm. Africa. The fossil fuel energy systems have failed Africa. They have promised Africa most of things, including revenue, including creating jobs, including improving people's livelihoods. But what, what have they delivered? They, they, they have displaced people from their homes. They have created the climate crisis. They have dispossessed people of their ancestral land. So all these problems that we have seen uh, with the fossil fuel systems, we need to move away and develop a system that is appropriate for Africa. Talking of um, the energy hunger that we have in Africa, and, you know what the leaders are trying to do uh, to solve that. You mentioned that there are 620 million people lack access to energy. That's a lot of people in Africa. So. Um, I know recently the African leaders met in July where they, they came up with what is considered among the climate activists as a retrogressive proposal of investing in fossil fuels. So this is, we know very well, this is something that the scientists have warned against. Uh, the rest of the world, especially the European Union, you have seen they are trying to as much as possible to move away from the fossil fuels. But Africa in July, uh, through the Africa's Technical Committee on Energy, uh, you know, they met and adopted what they call Africa's common position on energy access and just transition. We're trying, as much as we're trying to solve the crisis that we have in terms of ensuring that everyone in Africa gets access to clean energy, especially for cooking and stuff. So how, again, do we make sure that we are doing this, not supporting the fossil fuel that everyone is trying to move away from and enhancing resilience? We are living in quite um, unfortunate times. Um, with the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think there's renewed interest in Africa's gas uh, from Europe. And uh, this uh, has inspired African leadership to continue with the old narrative that uh, Africa needs to use all its natural resources um, to develop. Uh, and the argument is that uh, rich countries have developed um, using these resources, why not Africa? But we're living in different times. And uh, the problem we had previously is that uh, when we develop uh, infrastructures uh, for energy, um, you will realize that most of them are leading to the cost. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, we are not developing our energy systems for our people, but we are developing our energy systems for the market, uh, which is quite unfortunate. And that's the thing that has left many African people uh, in energy poverty, because in communities where oil is extracted, the communities do not have access to the oil because the pipelines lead to the coast and the oil is shipped um, abroad. That will continue to happen because the continued renewed interest, interest. In, in Africa's gas um, is to feed the European market as they win off the Russian gas. Now they're looking at Africa. You've correctly mentioned that the world is moving away from fossil fuel mm. because we all of us know that uh, countries have set their ambitions. Yeah. Some of them, they want to achieve net zero by 2050. Mm. And this means that as Africa develops its gas for Europe, this market is not going to be long term. Mm. 
Europe just wants to use Africa to meet its short-term energy needs. Mm. So what this means is that Africa will invest its limited resources in developing gas for Europe. Then the resources that will have been invested in developing gas will very soon become stranded as we lose the European market because the European uh, economies are preparing. In fact, they have laws, they have regulations within the EU that uh, punish carbon emission intensive production. So definitely Europe is moving away from fossil fuels. But wants to hook Africa on a fossil fuel trajectory. And that means that a continent for, that for a very long time has been energy poor will continue being energy poor because as everyone moves away uh, from uh, fossil fuels, it's being persuaded mm. to invest its limited resources mm. in a system that will be obsolete very soon. Mm. So there is a problem. African leadership has to think long term. Yeah, you know, mentioning of, you know, um, the investment of Africa's uh, energy system in terms of serving European uh, needs, uh, recently the EU, um, they voted on uh, considering fossil gas and nuclear projects as green, making them eligible, you know, for low-cost uh, loans and subsidies. Do you think that is, you know, something that is deliberately done to attract uh, investment of these kind of projects in Africa? Yes, it's, it's, it's very strategic. You see, um, the, the European countries want to uh, move away from Russian gas. But in the short term, they need to meet the energy needs that has been so dependent on gas for heating, for example. So they have to find an alternative. Uh, but instead of moving straight to uh, renewables, which is the future, and right now renewables are cost competitive, renewables are all the benefits that comes uh, with energy systems, um, they are now trying to hook Africa on fossil fuel, which is quite unfortunate. Mm. The times we are living in, and African leadership need to set the agenda, uh, we should find African solutions to African problems. Uh, we need to invest in finding solutions that are fit for purpose for our people. As we stand right now, the fossil industry has not benefited Africa, like I mentioned. Mm. So the only future for Africa is investing in renewables that is going to provide energy for the people, for productive uses, that's going to power hospitals, that's going to power our schools, that's going to power agricultural production, that is going to ensure that our people are building resilience to the challenges. But as long as we continue uh, serving other interests mm. and forgetting about our very own interests, we will continue uh, languishing in energy poverty. We will mm. continue being hit hard by climate crisis. Mm. We will continue being underdeveloped. In the beginning, you mentioned something that you're doing about you know, just transition. This is a topic that has been under discussion for quite some time. I was just wondering, maybe for someone out there in the community who doesn't understand what just transition is, maybe if you can briefly speak about that. And uh, as you were discussing about Africa's, you know, effort to move away from fossil fuels, that are meant to understand there are some of the economies, especially not just in Africa, but also some parts of the global south who are so dependent on, uh, you know, fossil fuels. So as we also talk about just transition, how do we then make sure that these uh, economies are also, uh, the, it's a win-win for everyone that these economies as we try to address the issue of climate change by ensuring that we all invest in renewable energy. What do we then do 
for these economies who are so over dependent like you know communities in south africa who are so over dependent on coal mining how then do we ensure that they are supported you know enhance their resilience um this uh, conversation that uh, was started by trade unionists and uh, they still lie you see uh, as we transition from uh, fossil fuels we need to ensure that we are leaving no one behind and as you have rightly mentioned, there are people already working uh, in the fossil fuel uh, sector. Um, the thing is, the renewable energy sector provides all the opportunities, including absorbing the people who are already working in fossil fuel sector, because renewable energy has the potential to provide more jobs, high quality jobs, than fossil fuels. The thing that's needed to be done is capacity building. We need to start working with communities. We need to start working with people already uh, working, uh, providing their services in the fossil fuel industry, reskilling them and uh, capacity building them so that they are ready for the takeoff. As we move away from fossil fuel to renewables, they are ready to be reabsorbed into the new systems. And um, this could be in the manufacturing sector. Uh, if we are going to uh, improve uh, Africa's participation in the renewable energy value chain because uh, we are looking at probably pro uh, producing solar panels in Africa mm -hmm. and that will increase our manufacturing uh, cap capacity, capacity. Yeah. and that will need more people to be able to work in the manufacturing sector. So the thing is we need to prepare for takeoff. We need to prepare our people to be able to capitalize on the opportunities that come with the transition. Uh, so we are working very closely, bringing together various stakeholders, but also asking governments mm. that as they plan, as they strategize to move away from fossil fuels, they need to engage the communities, the frontline communities mm. that have faced the injustices of fossil fuel system, mm -hmm. but also those that already work in, this, in the fossil industry directly, so that we are all of us prepared, because eventually we all of us agree we're going to move away from fossil fuels. So the faster we prepare our systems, the mm. faster we prepare our people, the faster we start thinking about this movement, this transition, the better place will be to benefit from the transition. But if we continue thinking that we can continue investing uh, in gas and wasting time, uh, we will find we'll be latecomers as Africa has always been. Mm. You see, Africa has always been um, the latecomer in our party. Now we are now want to join uh, the fossil fuel party, mm -hmm. the gas party. When it's already ended, everyone is moving away from gas. That's when we want to start it, uh, to enter the party and start uh, celebrating the mm -hmm. gas mm -hmm. uh, extractions <laughs> and explorations. Yeah. So we need to be this time round very strategic. Uh, we need to plan early. We need to prepare to benefit from the new dispensation, which is renewable energy. A few things I pick from that is um, enhancing the capacity of the people in terms of reskilling. You mentioned a very important point, reskilling uh, the people in the communities and those who have been working in the fossil fuel industries to reinvest their energy and time and the resources, you know, in trying to cope up with the new technologies. Is, is there any role you see on emerging technologies in Africa's just transition? You know, you have mentioned things about solar. We, we have geothermal potential in, in, in Kenya, for example, that is hugely underexploited. So, so what do you think is, uh, you know, derailing Kenya and the rest of Africa and the global south from moving in tandem with the rest of the world? Like I mentioned is that um, we need strategy and uh, they are emerging technologies. Mm. Uh, Africa has the potential uh, to meet its energy needs 
and also share uh, the energy resources that it has with the world. And uh, we have technologies such as green hydrogen that are emerging. Uh, green hydrogen has a huge potential of enabling Africa to invest in renewable energy yeah. systems. Yeah. As long as various principles that are very key to ensuring that Africa benefits from investments in green hydrogen are put in place. Yeah. One of the things that need to be done is that in as long as it has the potential of ensuring a very high rate rollout of renewable energy on the continent, the renewable energy that will be developed must meet the local needs of Africans first. As I have mentioned, 620 plus million people who do not have access to electricity mm -hmm. is not a small matter. So Africa, any energy development in Africa must be able to meet the needs of the people of Africa for energy. And then after that, we can use uh, renewable energy technologies to produce green hydrogen for uh, sharing with other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this sharing, uh, also Africa has to participate um, in sharing high value energy. You see, previously Africa has been a supplier of raw materials, mm -hmm. low value products mm -hmm. to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And this has not benefited Africa much. So this time around, we need to invest mm -hmm. and ask for high value participation mm -hmm. in these um, uh, market systems. Yeah. So when you talk of high value participation, like what do you mean? What I mean is that uh, when we are exporting gas, mm -hmm. yeah, we should also be able to produce everything that including the technology uh, in Africa. You see, you find that um, we are talking about rolling out uh, renewable energy on massive scales. Mm. But where will we be getting the technologies? Mm. You see, the technologies are not owned by Africans. So you find the only thing we are exporting is gas. But who's benefiting from this gas mm. is the people who own the technology. So Africans must also be able to own the technology of producing green hydrogen so that as we export the green hydrogen, we are benefiting from the full value of um, um, uh, hydrogen rather than just a small fraction. The people who own the technology and the processes are the ones who are benefiting a lot. And most of these are multinational uh, corporations, um, corporations yeah. that are not headquartered in Africa, mm -hmm. whose shareholders are not Africans or anything to do with that. What I'm picking from there is actually what I consider the, the key principles of just transition, which is sustainability and climate justice. You know, ensuring that as, as much as we are trying to ensure this, this transition, which benefits everyone, also there's a win-win for the communities, for Africa, for the rest of the world. It's not just for the corporations. We want to make sure that everyone is winning from all this. In terms of policy, do you think Africa is doing enough in addressing the issue of climate change? The thing is that uh, uh, climate crisis is a global crisis. And uh, as we build internal structures within African countries, I think also how we associate with our partners in the international community is very important. Some of the things that needs uh, to be addressed is the issues around climate finance, for example, mm -hmm. uh, policies that enable uh, climate finance for building resilience. Uh, we have seen uh, partnerships being forged on just energy transition uh, that focus on countries or economies that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. But what about those economies that uh, have not used fossil fuels mm -hmm. and they are facing underdevelopment? How do we address 
and they are the ones who are very much affected by the climate crisis. How do we address such kind of partnerships? So the partnership that will be created uh, between Africa and various partners have to also uh, address the issue of building resilience, mm. uh, especially avoided emissions, mm. so that as countries develop, they are developing on a trajectory that they are able to avoid a carbon-intensive pathway. Mm. So partnerships, policies that um, are developed have to enable Africa build resilience. And this is both internal and policies that are developed on multilateral level. And, and you see, this year, uh, we are having a COP um, in Africa. Let's make it truly an African COP. Like from the recently released IPCC reports, where we see underrepresentation from African scientists, one question that usually comes to my mind is that we don't have people who are qualified to, to be in those panels, you know, to influence what is being written on those reports. Because we're talking about a global issue, which has uh, a body, the IPCC, that is supposed to be, you know, a global body, having a few scientists from Africa. I see that African scientists don't take seriously the issue of climate change and, you know, take part in global processes. So, it, uh, because um, the only reason to make, the only way we are going to make the African voices heard is by being part of the discussions, by being on the table. The COP is coming to Africa, uh, you know, later this year in November. So how do we ensure that our voices are heard and it, and it really brings the impact that we want to see for Africa, unlike the other COPs? In any negotiation, everyone presents and protects their interests. So the question would be, has Africa uh, presented and protected her interests? Uh, my To my thinking, is to some extent, but we haven't done this very well. I think as the COP comes to Africa, we need to strategize and plan better than we have done previously. And some of the things that we can do is engage African scientists uh, quite closely because uh, I think um, the more we engage experts, the more we are able to approach um, the discussions in COP27 at Shemel Share with a clearer position. Because what we have seen previously is that uh, countries are promised things that have not been delivered. The climate finance is yet to be delivered fully. We're having problems with uh, countries that have, have double speak. They speak about uh, cutting emissions, but they still go back whenever there is a situation. Uh, for example, um, in Glasgow last year, we had countries that promised that they will not invest in fossil fuels abroad. But since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, now they are investing, they are going around um, Global South Africa promising uh, investments in um, fossil fuels. You can see they have gone back on their promise uh, on gas and now they are considering gas as a cleaner uh, quote-to-quote uh, um, energy source. Uh, which is quite unfortunate. I think Africa needs to develop a clear position as it, it enters uh, international debates. Mm -hmm. uh, we, if we have that level of clarity, where we have a common position among all African countries, uh, that position that is informed by science, mm -hmm. a position that is widely consulted, uh, a position that is very representative of African voices, I think um, we might end up uh, having something at the African COP. But if we approach it as we have approached before, without engaging science, without consulting widely, 
mm-hmm. without um, having clear and common positions uh, to advance in such spaces, uh, we'll end up losing as we've done. Before. Very strong recommendations there. Uh, you mentioned very important things, you know, consulting science, involving all the stakeholders and uh, making sure that all the voices are cross-border. We are nearing uh, the end of this. So perhaps if you have a few recommendations that you want to put across, a take-home message for anyone who is listening to this. I would say that uh, um, in as much as we're living in a climate crisis, it's not all lost. We still have a window of opportunity to be able to build resilience, but also uh, to achieve uh, the target of um, limiting uh, temperature rise below 1.5 degrees. Mm. But it all depends on our actions. We need to take actions now. We need to take actions urgently. If we have, uh, we if we are to have that small chance mm. of uh, limiting temperature rise, but also enabling communities to uh, build resilience. Uh, one of the things that we need to do is, we need to all of us come together to address uh, the gaps that uh, we have mentioned in this podcast. Mm. As we address these gaps, we need also uh, to be very deliberate in ensuring that uh, we are limiting our global temperature rise, in ensuring that we are enabling our communities to build resilience, in ensuring that Africa's problems are being addressed, the issues around underdevelopment and energy poverty. We have to be deliberate. There's no way uh, we are going to address uh, the issues of climate change if we are not going to be deliberate. And by, by, by being deliberate, I think we need to put in place measures. We need to put investments in place. We need to put our policies uh, in order. We need to engage. Uh, we need to be very democratic. We need to listen to people. We need to listen to various voices and solutions. We need to really uh, discuss so that we, as we develop all these toolbox, it's a toolbox that is fit for purpose to solve the multiple challenges that the continent is facing. So that's a very strong message. We need to be deliberate, we need to act, and we need to act now. Lastly, do you think there's a space for the young people in this? The future belongs to the young. When we talk about the climate crisis, the people will be very much affected are the young people. For us, to be able to ensure that we have intergenerational equity. We've just talked about justice. Mm. If we are going to have intergenerational justice, then we must involve young people because there's nothing about them if we don't involve them. Yeah, thank you so much, Mr. Amos, for the amazing contribution that you've had on this show. Uh, It's been amazing having a conversation with you and to every young person out there who is listening to this, it is our time to act. We need to act and we need to act fast. Make sure to check out our social media pages and uh, subscribe so that you stay informed of the future um, conversations that we'll be having. Thank you so much. I've been your host, Omesa Mokaya, and this is the Climate Voices Podcast.